1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, author and podcaster Patrick Wyman. He's written a book called The Verge, which uh, hits the bookshelves, I think, July 20th here, coming up very, very soon. And the really neat thing about this story, I don't know how many of you remember being in history class, and we really just had to kind of memorize it Wrote. Well, he's written this book about the fantastic changes that took place in Europe in just a 40-year span between 1490 and 1530. And it really, because he, he, does it, he does it person by person rather than dynasty by dynasty and date by date, he gives us the people behind what made all this happen. And there was a lot happening. So, Patrick Wyman, if you would please introduce yourself and what you've been doing, we'd appreciate it. And then we'll get into the story.
0: So I'm Patrick Wyman. Um, I have a PhD in history from the University of Southern California. Uh, I did my doctoral research on the end of the Roman Empire and on communications networks. I looked at every letter written between about 450 and 600 AD, and I mapped them. I looked at where they were sent to and how those patterns changed over time. Um, After that, I happened to be working as a sports journalist at the same time. I was covering mixed martial arts and boxing. Uh, I realized that the academic life was probably not right for me. Uh, so I started doing podcasts. I did a podcast first called The Fall of Rome on the uh, basically what I covered in my doctoral dissertation in the end of the Roman world. Um, and after that, I transitioned to a show called Tides of History, which is what I'm currently doing. Um, right now, I'm doing a season on prehistory. But before that, I did seasons on the early modern period, um, late medieval and early modern period. And that is more or less what I cover in The Verge, just in a much more directed and, I would say, art argument-driven fashion, which is as a book should be.
1: Yeah, all the experts, all the, exp- all the historians uh, have a battle over this one. What was the major cause of what we call the Reformation Renaissance that really shook the world and brought Europe uh, pretty much to the forefront at that time? And it's like you say in your book, it's follow the money. And uh, a lot of that is very, very true. But it was also it was also a perfect storm of personalities and people, too, that made a lot of this happen and risk takers. Uh, which I think was uh, something fairly new to that time. The way you explained it here, from global backwater to global dominance in 40 years. And that's that's true. And that's an
0: amazing change that took place. The thing that really strikes me about this particular period is is more or less what you said, just that there was a lot happening in a very restricted, very limited period of time. There were major shifts in how Europeans lived their lives, in the state structures that governed them, in the communications technologies that were available to them, in their religious lives, that all of the sudden uh, you had a whole bunch of colliding processes that really transformed not just the daily kind of lived experience of people, but also it set in store uh, much of what was going to happen over the next several centuries. Uh, we, when When we're looking at the past and we're trying to understand why things happen, we're trying to look at the big uh, kind of sense of causality, right? We there are a few different timescales that we have to work on. So we have the very long structural changes that take centuries and centuries to play out. Most of history is just kind of you know things moving from from one uh, one day to the next, one month to the next, one year to the next, with almost imperceptible changes in how life is lived. But then there's also a much more rapid. Kind of change. This is the, the kind of history of events um, that we're probably much more familiar with. When we're talking about a history of events, we can call these periods where a lot happens in a very short period of time, we can call that a critical juncture. And I really think this period at the beginning of the 16th century is one of those where things can change very, very rapidly. Um, you have you might, I mean, either opportunities or pitfalls to, um, to radically change institutions and ways of thinking about the world and, and really lay foundations that can last for a much longer time than this, than this critical juncture itself might actually last. So as we're getting into this period, the, the, Basic raw things, the ingredients for it had already been present. They were there for a long time. It's not like there were really radical shifts in technology. The printing press had already been around. Gunpowder had already been around for a long time. The ships that the, 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 were taken out on voyages of exploration had already been around for a long time. But what really shifts is scale. The scale of all of this grows much larger. The armies get bigger. There are way more books coming off of the printing presses. The voyages of exploration get much larger, much more profitable, much more, uh, a lot more people involved, a lot more ships. They get a lot more expensive. And I think... That's the kind of shift that we have to understand and that we have to explain. And the one that really drives the next several centuries is how do we go from very small scale, limited ventures to very large scale ventures? How do we go from Columbus with three ships to conquering new world empires? Um, That was the and that was the kind of basic thing that I wanted to explain that I wanted to try to understand with this. And for me, the answer lay in the money um it lay in not just the money itself but in the mechanisms that that funneled money into these projects the money that said okay we're instead of 3 ships we're going to send 20 ships instead of a small army of 5 or 10,000 men We're going to keep 200,000 men under arms at the same time, um, which is what the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V had toward the end of his reign. Um, That was the kind of shift in scale that I thought was really important to understand and um, a much more hidden one. It's much easier to see cannons, fortresses, big fleets going out in the water. It's much harder to explain why those things were able to do that and how you can how you can have that shift in the first place.
1: Two questions, maybe two questions in one for you, but what made you decide to start at 1490? Was there a key, key factor? And also one other thing that might combine with that answer, and that is one of the people who fascinated me the most, or one of the stories of people who fascinated who fascinated me the most was Isabella of Castile and the way you brought her to life. And I'm hoping that uh, within those questions, you can kind of give us a little sample of, uh, of what fascinated you about her and why she was a a, a real key in this whole
0: movement? Yeah, so there, those are actually linked questions, and Isabella is a great example of this, that when, when we're historians and we're talking about periodization, about the, the time when one, one big, broad period of time comes to an end and another begins, which is one way of thinking about what happens around 1500, the beginning of what we call the early modern period, I look personally for clusters of events I look for clusters of things not necessarily in related um, in related fields but things that are happening at roughly the same time when we can say we've got a bit of a rupture and to me 1490 looks like that we see a whole bunch of different things happening in different fields um, that where we can say oh yeah okay things have changed things have shifted we can we can fundamentally say we're going off in new directions and Isabella to me so Isabella's is queen of Castile um, from the 1470s to 1504, when she dies. And Isabella, for me, really encapsulates those shifts. You can see all of these processes play out over the course of her life, and you can see her agency. You can see the way in which she personally drove these things forward. She's an extraordinary person, not necessarily a good person in the way that we would understand these things. We don't have to hold her up as a hero to see that she's important, that there are aspects of her personality. She's incredibly driven, she's smart, she's savvy. Usually, when we talk about um, the, the the two Spanish monarchs of this period, um, it's Ferdinand and Isabella. I always think it's Isabella and Ferdinand. She ruled Castile, of the two component kingdoms that go into making Spain, Aragon and Castile. Castile is by far the larger and the more important. It's much more populous. It's much richer. Um, so I think Isabella should always have uh, should always have top billing there, but she manages to navigate this incredibly this like minefield of politics and backstabbing that was going on in, in Castile in the 1460s and the 1470s. She makes her own choice about who she's gonna marry. She decides she's gonna marry this guy Ferdinand of Aragon. Um, she wins a civil war uh, that, that also involves the king of Portugal who married his niece. The king of Portugal married his, uh, his teenage niece to give himself a claim on, uh, on the throne of Spain. Pretty sordid business. Um, so Isabella wins a civil war against this guy, and then she embarks on a long, what we would call the last crusade, really, I think, the, um, the attempt to conquer the Moorish kingdom of Granada at the at the very southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula. And so over the course of this war, Isabella and Ferdinand and their growing kingdom of Spain develop what I think are the kind of characteristic tools of the modern state. Um, Those are mostly fiscal tools that allow the state to wage war year after year after year after year on this ever increasing scale that I talked about. And a lot of that is Isabella personally, Isabella personally driving things forward, Isabella making the right connections, Bankers trusting in Isabella personally that that if they lend her this money to put this army out into the field Then they're going to be able to do this Isabella's own personal piety is a major factor in driving forward the Spanish Inquisition and The the kinds of stark divisions between insider and outsider that come to define the early modern period Um, I think all of this is really summed up in her reign and and as I said before we don't have to see her as a hero but we do have to understand that there are ways in which she as an individual was wrapped up in these much larger processes and that if we were to take her out and replace her with another person, we wouldn't necessarily get the same outcome. So it's this way of trying to find the middle ground between individual agency the contingency of the moment, just what happens to be possible at any given time in history, and then these much longer term, much larger processes that stretch beyond any individual person, any individual dynasty, any individual um, state or kingdom.
1: She had had fairly quickly built up a pretty strong portfolio that any lender uh, wouldn't have to look at twice. Was a lot of that due to uh, gold
0: taken from the America's um, no, huh? so this so this actually predated it. And this is one of the really fundamental shifts um, that we see in this period is b- before new world treasure comes flowing into Europe, the fiscal mechanisms to make use of it and to channel it effectively already existed. Um, so what Isabella and Ferdinand develop in Spain that is still the basis for basically how we run state finance today is a, a long term interest bearing state debt. So basically, you you would take out a loan. Um, the the rulers would take out a loan, and in return, they would give these essentially investors a, a share. And this share would pay off interest at regular intervals. Um, that's still basically the way that we do state finance today. It had existed before, but no, um, but it had only been done in city states, like small mercantile city states, where the political elite and the mercantile elite, this wealthy groups of merchants, were effectively the same people. Is the so. And in that case, you're, you're essentially loaning to yourselves, right, if you're the, if you're the elite of a city-state. This had never been done in a kingdom before. It had never been done in a kingdom that had millions and millions and millions of inhabitants that wanted to put armies of 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people into the field at any given time. This is the real fiscal innovation of Isabella, and Kes- uh, of Isabella and Ferdinand's reign. And so when the new world treasure comes rolling in, you get a multiplier effect, because all of a sudden, you have the collateral to make much larger and larger and larger and larger loans. So you end up with a kind of an exponential growth of all the things that state finance can, can fund and finance. You get bigger expeditions, bigger armies, um, bigger ambitions. What convinced Isabella and Ferdinand
1: to take a look at the Italian Columbus when he came knocking on their door? And tell
0: us a little bit about Columbus. So the kind of things you don't maybe learn in history books. So I think the fundamental thing to learn and know about Columbus is that Again, we should not necessarily, we should not view him as a hero, definitely. And to me, what makes Columbus stand out and what makes him an interesting figure to talk about this period is not that he was extraordinary. He was not single-handedly pulling Europe out of some backwards age into the modern period, uh, you know, by virtue of his vision and innovation. It's that Columbus was fairly typical of his time in pretty much every way. Um, He was typical in his attitudes, he was typical in the way that he understood commerce, he was typical, maybe a little bit outstanding in his ambitions and his opinion of himself. Uh, but, but he was mostly typical that if you were to replace Columbus, in contrast to Isabella of Castile, with any other sea captain on the deck of a ship in the harbor of Lisbon or Seville in 1492, the outcome would not be that much different in kind of the broad historical sense. What Columbus had and what he did really well was lobby. Columbia, uh, Columbus, we have to think of him like a, like a Silicon Valley pitchman who's just out there pitching his app over and over and over and over again until finally somebody bit. Because the, uh, Columbus's plan to sail to the West was predicated on a totally mistaken assumption. It was predicated on the totally mistaken idea that the world was about a third smaller than it actually is. Columbus was not the only person who believed this. Um, there were other contemporaries who did, but the people who mattered, um, like the King of Portugal, who had a whole panel of expert geographers and navigators, um, were well aware of what the actual size of the world is. And they knew that if Columbus went sailing straight out into the Atlantic, looking for the Indies, he would run out of food and water way before he ever got there. So they kind of laughed him out of the room. Um, the Kings of the the King of, uh, uh, Aragon and the Queen of Castile Ferdinand and Isabella they heard Columbus's pitch it took Columbus years and years and years to gain access to them um, and eventually they made what amounted to a small investment it was about the annual income of a mid-level provincial aristocrat is what Columbus's voyage cost and um, Even then, though, it's not like they just handed him the money. Columbus had to get in tight with a bunch of financiers at the Spanish court, and these were the people who eventually pushed his expedition forward and made it possible. Um, They took out a bunch of different loans. There were these kind of labyrinthine financial connections necessary to make it happen. Um, The port of Palos in southern Spain had been dodging its taxes. To the crown, and so the uh, the caravels that went on the voyage, the Nina and the Pinta, were actually a tax payment in kind for the for the sailors of Palos having dodged their taxes. Uh, this is when we think about Columbus's voyage. This is the stuff to me that's really fascinating. Um, it's the stuff about Columbus himself that's fascinating. Is that he's a typical guy. It's a small scale thing. Basically, the rulers of Spain kind of heard him out while they were engaged in much bigger and weightier business, um, and eventually he gets the go ahead on a, what is essentially a speculative venture. If they never hear from Columbus again, no worries. What, you haven't lost much of anything at that point. Um, the fact that it happened to work out is much more a stroke of accident than it is any sort of inherent genius on Columbus's part or even vision on the part of Ferdinand and Isabella. I'm going to ask you to give three
1: positives about Columbus and three negatives, and we'll see how it balances out. Is that fair?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say a positive for Columbus in the context of the time, mind you, um, is that Columbus was an, a really, really, really experienced navigator. So no single voyage that Columbus took over the course of his life was atypical. Um, he had been He had been to the eastern Mediterranean, he had been south to the coast of West Africa. He had been north to England, maybe even as far as Iceland. Um, none of those voyages was, out of the ordinary for a sailor of the late 15th century. But the fact that Columbus had made all of them was pretty extraordinary. It meant that he had a breadth of experience that was genuinely unusual for a sailor of the time. Um, Second, Columbus was a driven autodidact. So he really, really wanted to learn things. He was an avid reader. Um, he, He sought out books and knowledge to give himself the kind of theoretical, geographic knowledge that would underpin his more practical experience of sailing in the sea. Um, And finally, I think Columbus had a a pretty sophisticated understanding of the business of sea ventures, which in my mind is why these investors at the Spanish court were willing to trust him with it, is because Columbus already knew the rules. He knew how these kind of credit-driven financialized sea voyages were supposed to work, where you're operating on credit, where you have contracts that are laying out who's going to get what at the end of the voyage. Um, that This is a pretty sophisticated mercantile world, and Columbus has been raised in this world. He knows how it works. He knows what the rules are. Um, so if we're going for three positives, those are the ones I would say. Now, if we're looking for negatives, first of all, Columbus was a terrible manager of people. Um, He was abrasive. He had an incredibly high opinion of himself. And essentially from the beginning, it's clear that people don't want to work with him unless they absolutely have to. So I think part of the reason that the King of Portugal outright rejected his advances, his attempt to get funding for his voyage there, is because the King of Portugal couldn't stand Columbus. Um, and when Columbus gets back from the New World on his first voyage, um, he actually gets blown into port in Lisbon, in the in the capital of of the in the capital of Portugal, and he goes in front of the Portuguese king, and he immediately spends time crowing about how he was right and the king of Portugal was wrong, and he very nearly gets himself clapped in irons and thrown in prison for this. That's a perfect encapsulation of who Columbus was, um, that even when it would have behooved him not to, he simply could not shut up. Uh, so that's, so I think that's number one. And this gets him in trouble later on. This is part of what gets him clapped in irons and returned from the new world in disgrace. Um, his sailors at one point think that he's lost his mind because he's he thinks that he's having visions of the Virgin Mary. Um, he is alternating between extreme cruelty and extreme laxity in the way that he's handling his subordinates. And so I think that there's a really tragic way in which Columbus's personal weaknesses and, and kind of personal hubris gets wound into the DNA of the Spanish colonial project in the Americas. That if there had been what we might call a stronger hand or a more experienced administrator running things from the beginning, then maybe just maybe small chance we wouldn't have ended up with the tragedies that resulted from Columbus's um, landing in the new world. Um, So that's number one. I think number two definite negative about Columbus is uh, his background as being from Genoa. Um, Genoa is one of the very few major slave trading centers in the Mediterranean and Atlantic worlds at the end of the 15th century. In most places, slavery does not really exist. Um, It does in Genoa. And so Columbus, from the very beginning, has this idea in mind that we can look at people as profit centers. That if all else fails on these voyages, if nothing else, if we find people, then we can turn those people into money. So that's baked into Columbus's understanding of the world in a way that it's not for absolutely everybody who's, who's operating here. If we're, if we go to England, if we go to Bristol or London in 1492, and we ask a sea captain it, when we show up in a new land, how should we understand the people there? They're not automatically going to say, well, we can enslave them. Um, that's, that was something that was very specific to the maritime milieu that Columbus was in. And he, and he was a perfect example of that. And And, we can see the Arabs as well. Is
1: that fair to say?
0: Yeah, yeah, there was there was an Arab slave trade as well, but it was um but Columbus was definitely uh, belonged to the European exponent of this. And it, so it also existed in Lisbon, um, it existed it existed in southern Spain, it existed in Genoa, but it didn't exist absolutely everywhere. It's not like when we look at Europe at this time, we say, well, of course they were going to enslave the people that they found. If it had been somebody else and not Columbus from the very beginning, then maybe, just maybe, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so I think that's number two. and. Number three, there's um, and again, this is more about Columbus's milieu, uh, the specific world that Columbus belonged to than than it is about Columbus himself. But there's this propensity for violence that um, the that, that it's understood that violence is supposed to be a part of how you conduct business, that there's no real easy distinction between violence, commercial activity and uh, and, and exploration, that these things are all bound together via the profit motive. Um, these people are not out there na- doing NASA things, you know, they're not they're not trying to advance the interests of humankind um, These are profit oriented ventures that have investors who, who want to be paid off who have they have captains who want to get rich um, They have sailors who expect to be paid at the end of the day And so these are all things that are expected to justify and pay for themselves and Columbus is just a a really outstanding example of that rather than being somehow extraordinary. So when I talk about Columbus as being typical, this is what I mean. It's that Columbus's flaws are very much the flaws of his very specific world that he belonged to. you can, if you want to really single him out, you can say, well, he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Um, he's prideful. He's uh, he's a poor manager of people. He's uh, he's altogether too willing to turn to these to turn to these options when they're available. But he's very much a man of his time and his place, and so his flaws are the flaws of late medieval Europe in some deep and profound way.
1: I think that's a fair point that you make. When a lot of people just tend to, to um, hold it against Columbus for his brutality, and it is true, he was very brutal. He brought that, he brought that brutality to Central America almost in the same way that you would picture aliens with advanced weapons coming to Fort Knox, brutally subjugating all of our soldiers and people at Fort Knox who had never seen that kind of technology uh, and just taking all they wanted and and then leaving the wreckage and carnage and mistrust behind. I kind of see it in the same way. It was like another civilization. Far, far advanced,
0: just coming into your midst. Yeah, see, and so I only, I only disagree a little bit in the sense that it's not just about the technology as it is, it's about the willingness to use it, right? Yeah. That there's, that there's, there's no real barrier in Columbus's mind that says, I shouldn't do this thing. It's the, it's the lack of, uh, it's the lack of a mechanism to stop him. And, and this is true of, I think when we look at all of the European, the, these early European um, expeditions that that get sent out, Vasco da Gama. If we're like if we're weighing kind of villains of the late 15th century Vasco da Gama is a much greater villain than Columbus is in the sense that Vasco da Gama Seems like an outright psychopath Um, There's a when when da Gama shows up in the Indian Ocean there It's not that his technology is necessarily a lot better than than what's present there You know, they're canon in the Muslim world. They're they're canon in India at this point It's that he's willing to use them and so Da Gama takes a ship that's full of pilgrims um, that's headed across the Indian Ocean, that's headed from Mecca. Da Gama and, and his sailors capture this ship, they loot it, um, but instead of taking it as a prize or just letting it go on its way now that they had what they wanted, Da Gama makes the decision to burn the ship with all the passengers on board. And for not just for the Muslims of the Indian Ocean trading world, but even for Dagama's sailors, the people who are on this expedition with him, that's an extreme thing. It, it's it's a sickening thing for the people who are, for the European chroniclers who are writing about this, who were on the voyage, um, that this is a kind of an unconscionable act. But this is the kind of thing that we see time and time and time again um, With these early European voyages of exploration and it's not that like you pluck your random European off the street uh, from from Seville or from Lisbon or Paris or London and put them in this situation They're gonna do it. It's that the people who went on these voyages belonged to a very specific kind of subculture where violence was already accepted and understood to be a tool um, to further commercial interests.
1: We'll return to our interview with Patrick Wyman right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on Many a Night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers, as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now back to the 40 years that changed the world. Let's discuss Martin Luther, the printing press, and disrupting the church. And, and in the process of doing that, I'd like you to explain to me what the major changes were in the church between 1490 and 1540. We know that still after 1540, there was still a lot of, a lot of wars and a lot of brutality that's, that's attributed to the church. What changes were made and how did things shift? And did they shift for the better?
0: Okay, so the basic uh, the basic thing is prior to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, there's w- there's one church. But the church is a big tent. It encompasses a lot of diversity. So when we talk about a singular church like capital C church, where where it's it's something of an oversimplification or it's something of a it, it's kind of misleading because the Church is a lot of things. The Church is warrior monks that are out there swinging swords on the deck of a ship um, and basically doing pirate things in the Eastern Mediterranean. The Church is impoverished little monasteries with the roof falling in. The church is uh, the the church is, you know, kind of the splendor of the papal court. The Church is all of those things. After Martin Luther, after the Reformation gets rolling, the the even theoretical unity of the Church is broken that no matter how much diversity there had been beforehand, we could still say that we had one thing, we had one church. That is no longer possible after Martin Luther. That is the single fundamental thing that Luther does is he splinters forever the unity of the church and even the potential unity of the church. And once it splinters even a little bit, it was going to continue splintering and continue splintering and continue splintering uh, until you were left with the kind of the really heterogeneous um, religious uh, landscape of 16th, 17th, 18th century Europe. So Martin Luther's great contribution um, is basically that he picks up on all of these threads that are always there in Christian thought and that had existed not without controversy in the middle ages, you know, there, there, depending on who you were in the middle ages, you might depending on the line of reform that you wanted to pick up, you might be celebrated as a saint. You might be burned at the stake as a heretic kind of depending on who you were, who was in charge, where you were, what was going on at the time. Um, the story of the medieval church is the story of reform. It's not like the church had been kind of locked in amber for centuries beforehand. It was always changing. It was always in motion. It was a big, complex, sophisticated series of networks and processes and, and just hundreds of thousands of people kind of spread all across Europe were, were invested in this thing that we call the church. Martin Luther's, what Martin Luther changes is he takes church reform out of the hands of the clergy and the elites and he makes it a much broader thing. And this is where the printing press is fundamental to the story of Luther, the story of the Reformation, the story of reform, is Luther takes it from being a thing that is carried out in Latin, that is carried out among the clergy, or people who are adjacent to the clergy, and he makes it a thing for everybody. All of a sudden, Anybody can pick up one of Martin Luther's German language Bibles. They can pick up one of his pamphlets. They can pick up one of his long reform tracts. And all of a the sudden, they can have their own opinions about reform. And this is the kind of spiraling series of developments that Luther triggers. And, you know, to come back to what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, is somebody replaceable or not as a historical figure? I think Columbus is replaceable. Isabella of Castile, maybe not. Martin Luther is absolutely irreplaceable. Because his very specific talents, his very specific, I guess you could call them kind of peccadillos, the things that he's worried about, all of these things are essential to understanding how and why the Reformation plays out the way it did. Not that there wouldn't have been a Reformation without Martin Luther necessarily, it's just that it took the form it did in large part Because of Martin Luther's very specific personality characteristics that he just he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote He understood how printing worked. He understood how the printing industry worked So he understood what kind of texts he should write to get printed that would spread the message far and wide Doesn't do you any good if you write something and nobody prints it and nobody reads it, right? So Luther understood that if he wrote these kind of short punchy pamphlets that he used inflammatory language, that he often combined them with a very, with a kind of eye-catching, provocative image that people were going to read them. This was going to get the message out. And that's a rare combination of talents for an individual to have, not just this kind of burbling, bubbling, blazing theological brain, but also the writing skill in multiple languages, the sense for the, the communications media through which your work is disseminated, read, understood that's a really, really, really rare combination of things to have. And I think that defines Luther.
1: Two questions for you about Luther. One, how much pushback did he receive? And two, what were the basic differences between Luther's idea of religion and God and Jesus as compared to
0: Catholicism of its time? So at the very beginning, Luther's ideas did not differ all that much um there what the reason why luther got such pushback and he got pushback pretty much from the very beginning um it was almost a matter of accident it was because he picked the what were effectively either the right or the wrong people to send his messages to, depending on how you look at it, depending on how, on your perspective here. Um, there's a very real chance that Luther, so Luther writes up this document called the 95 Theses. We know it, it's famous. We know that it launches the Protestant Reformation. Nobody knew that in October of 1531. Um, even the whole idea of Luther like pounding this into the church door, well, that's because the church door was the bulletin board that for the community. That's just where you went if you wanted to put something up. Luther was a professor of theology. The 95 Theses were a call to public debate which was not an unusual thing. University professors did this all the time. That was the, the stuff of being a university professor, which Luther was. So that's not all that unusual. What's unusual is that Luther gets, gets this printed up. My man loved the printing press from the very beginning. Uh, and he sent it to a variety of recipients. One of the recipients that he sent it to was a guy named Bishop Albrecht. And this bishop was a really important guy. Um, he was a member of a very, very wealthy and powerful family, and he ha- this guy happened to be happened to kind of take offense at what Luther was suggesting, which revolved around indulgences. Indulgences were a kind of get out of jail free card, a spiritual get out of jail free card. Um, the church loved them because they were a great fundraising mechanism. If you paid X amount of money for an indulgence, then, your soul would be clean, or you could buy an indulgence on behalf of, uh, of a deceased relative, somebody who was in purgatory. Um, indulgences had kind of flooded the market over the past few decades, again, largely thanks to the printing press, because you could just run these things off. It was like printing money, right? So church loved them. Everybody loved them. Um, except for the more scrupulous theologians. And Luther was not the only one. Um, One of the ironies of Luther's stance against indulgences is that his very first opponent, a guy named Cardinal Cajetan, um, had written a tract against indulgences a couple of years before that was very similar in outline to the objections that Luther raises to this practice. Um, Indulgences bothered Luther so much, and this is to answer your question about the basic difference, because... uh, the, the theology of indulgences depended on the idea that that the church was a kind of a storehouse of salvation on its own, right? That if you paid money, you could get access to the treasury of merits and the church could wipe your slate clean. For Luther, justification and, uh, justification and salvation was by faith alone. So that was between you and God and the church could not be an intermediary in that. Um, now, this is this was not necessarily all that far out there. There were lots of kind of similar statements being made and had been made over the course of centuries um, by you know pretty much anybody who thought about it. Because the 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 key to understanding the Reformation is that all of this stuff is in the Bible. You know, the Bible is a contradictory long confusing complex text and depending on what you read and how you read you can justify a whole lot of things um with with scripture so the you know (laughs) um one of my favorite descriptions of of the reformation is that it's basically an argument um between different readings of saint augustine and it's basically an argument that saint augustine this uh, fourth fifth century theologian was having with himself about um justification by faith about predestination, that all of these things were issues theologically speaking that had been around for a thousand years people knew that these were contradictions it's not like this stuff was new what was new yeah, was the they already built greek plays based on those contradictions yeah oh yeah all of this all of this stuff was out there it's not like suddenly people woke up one day and they were like oh my goodness how are we going to uh, how are we going to 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 reconcile these um, seemingly irreconcilable things the the ideas had been around for a long time. What changes is the social, political, economic, and technological context in which they're happening. Right. In which these debates are being carried out, the kinds of broader um, social fractures that they're worming their way into. Um, that's what sh- that's what shifts. And what shifts also is kind of Martin Luther himself and Luther's position in this and his willingness to just stand up there and take the heat because um, he he took the pushback from the very beginning. Uh, What's really what's fascinating to me about Luther, among many other things, I think there's a lot that's fascinating about him. But um, I think it's how quickly all of this happens, and this speaks to to the kind of scale stuff that I was talking about earlier. That it does not take very long for all of this to really uh, to really blossom, bloom, and spiral out of Martin Luther's control. So for the first four or five years of the Reformation, Luther is undeniably the central figure his work accounts for the vast bulk of what's printed and what's read he is the single driving force behind all of this but after that it slips beyond luther's grasp and this happens very quickly this is the that once luther has laid down a template for how you can make money um by printing religious uh, inflammatory religious pamphlets the market moves beyond luther and people are still reading him. He's still a figure who matters, but he matters less and less and less and less. Instead of being a kind of a trans-European figure, he's much more of a regional figure who's kind of, who's very important in north Northern Germany, Eastern Germany, a little bit beyond, but but not too far beyond that. Um, the Reformation quickly becomes a thing that's not about Luther himself. So he's very important as this spark who who changes things in a very fundamental way. But then after that, it's it's remarkable how quickly it moves past him. Patrick, I was hoping you
1: could explain Aldous Minutius and the effect he had on, on printing and why he pretty much was a huge factor in launching the new age of information in
0: Europe. Yeah. So Aldous Minutius is for a period of some years in the early 16th century, the most prolific printer in Europe. Um, he His books were more of his books were printed, they were more widely read. they were they were kind of all over the place. And you can see, I can't help it, from him did we get the word minutia? <laughs> we did not get the word minutia from him, but um, but Aldous Minutius is still with us today. if the the, the italic typeface, that that we're all familiar with was developed by Aldous Manutius. Okay. Um, the uh, the the small kind of octavo format that most that most that most books are printed in these days was developed by Aldous Manutius. So in a whole bunch of really profound ways, Aldous Manutius's legacy is still with us in the in the way that we consume and understand information. Um, so. The, but the way that I want to focus on all this Minutius is to to understand him as as a businessman because it's easy to present all this Minutius as kind of uh, you know either a just a pure. A pure printer or somebody who was a scholar because that's what all this Minutius was his background was in scholarship um, He was he was a humanist what though what we understand as one of these new figures of renaissance learning um, He loved the Latin and the Greek classics. That was what he wanted to do He wanted to use the printing press as a means to bring this knowledge to um, to wider audiences but what made that possible for Manutius was having a really sophisticated understanding of the business of printing because by the beginning of the 16th century, this technology has been around for a while. It's been around for half a century. Um, but in the 1490s, there were still as many or more books being copied out by hand as manuscripts than were being uh, than were being printed. It, the, it was not by any stretch of the imagination the dominant technology for, for making books. And we shouldn't assume that it was destined to become so either. Because what printing didn't have was a viable business model. Printing depended on speculation printed uh, printing depended on trying to estimate the size of the audience that was going to buy a book, how much to charge for a thing, where to find that audience. Um, It depended on having credit and it depended on having credit in order to cover all of the upfront costs that went along with printing that book. Cause you had to buy paper, you had to buy ink, you had to pay for labor. Um, Of course you had the massive capital investments in the type uh, which had to which had to be cut and stamped. Uh, all of that was incredibly expensive to do. And so you had to put all this money out there before you ever saw a penny in return for it. This made it a risky business. If you bet wrong on even a single title, then your press could go under. And presses did all the time. Most of the printing presses that that gave it a run, that came into business, uh, did not survive for longer than two or three printings. Um, It was a really, really risky business. So what makes Minutius stand out is not just that he had this impact, it's that he stayed in business for decades. It's that he was able to find ways to say, okay, Who's my audience? Who am I going to sell these to? What's the distribution network I need to build to make sure that my books reach the audience to make sure that I get paid? Um, what kind of financial backing do I need to have? So to me, that's one of the things that makes Minutius really stand out is not just that he has this effect. It's that the, the business climate that makes it possible for him to do so, right? That, um, that, it's not enough to have a good idea, it's not enough to be a, a technological innovator. You have to have the business acumen to be sure that your products are going to uh, that your products are going to reach the audience and that you're going to be remunerated for them. And I think that's the story of the printing industry in the early 16th century is that it found business models. And that's what ensures the success of the printing press and its long-term impact is that it found ways of paying for itself and of making profit for people. So there were incentives for people to, to to put up those upfront costs in paper and ink and type and labor. It made sense for people to it made sense for people to to pour their money into it, and that's how we get what effectively amounts to an information revolution.
1: If you were going to do a movie of Suleiman the Magnificent. Mm-hmm. How would you begin it? What scene would you capture
0: the viewers' attention with? Um, okay, so I think there are two. There are two real possibilities that, to me, speak to uh, that, to me, speak to Suleiman and. The both of them are scenes of Suleiman in triumph, so they share that in common. The first is Suleiman in the aftermath of the Battle of Mohach in 1526, after he's defeated the Hungarians, and he's watching the prisoners be paraded by in front of his tent where they're being executed. They're being beheaded, um, and it's a long train of prisoners, and they're kind of piling up the heads to make a. They're kind of they're piling up the heads to make a, uh, um, to make a little bit of a pyramid there. Um, and Suleiman, as he's as he's watching this is dispassionate right this is not something that shocks him he has seen this site before and when he writes about it in his personal campaign journal afterward um, what he notes about the day is not the executions it's the it was raining Um, and that to me sums up something really profound about Suleiman's understanding of, of his role what he was about and his sense of destiny that he thought okay you know Executing a couple thousand prisoners after an enormous victory is all in a day's work. That's that is the kind of natural job that I'm doing as as the as the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. So that's one scene. I and I think the other is, which shows I think the flip side of Suleiman's personality, is after he has conquered Rhodes, which is the stronghold of the Hospitaller Knights, who. Um, U- later become the Knights of Malta. Um, and Suleiman is Suleiman receives the surrender of the master of the Knight's Order and he says, you know what a fine knight that man is. And lets him go, lets him go with all of his, lets him go with all of his knights. Probably a mistake in hindsight, because they became a thorn in the Ottoman side for the next uh, for the next several decades. Eventually led to the siege of Malta in 1565, right at the end of Suleiman's life. Um, but he let them go as a gesture of magnanimity, and um, and really was full of admiration for his defeated adversaries. And so, but but to me, both of those sum up Suleiman because they're carried out from, from a position of superiority. And I think if we want to understand the position of the Ottomans in particular, but Western Europe more generally, then we have to understand that dynamic. That it's not a given that Western Europe is going to rise to become kind of the center of the global order. Um, The Ottoman Empire was the superpower of its day. Um, it was, there were several points at which it was very close to overrunning, um, the outposts of Western Christendom in central Europe and potentially going even further. Um, the, the Ottoman empire had more sophisticated fiscal mechanisms. It was every bit as, if not more so, um, sophisticated in terms of military technology and military organization. Um, there was basically the, it was not written in stone that, that the future of the global order was going to be centered on London, Amsterdam, paris as opposed to uh, as opposed to istanbul
1: how did the rise and fall of the ottoman empire affect europe
0: positively or was it more of a negative effect i so i think first of all we have to understand the ottoman empire as part of europe um rather than necessarily seeing it as rather than necessarily seeing it as somehow opposed the ottoman empire especially up until suleiman's reign is fundamentally a european power Right. So its power base is is in um, southeastern Europe. It's in Greece, the Balkans, um, Istanbul, uh, the and 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 in Asia Minor. It's only in actually then the reign of Suleiman's father, Salim the Grim, um, Great, great name. Uh, <laughs> that that the Ottoman Empire really it really becomes a Near Eastern power when it when it takes uh, Syria, Egypt, and then in Suleiman's reign, it extends itself into Mesopotamia. Uh, Suleiman makes alliances with uh, with the Barbary Corsairs of North Africa, um, but prior to that, the Ottoman Empire was a European power. Its power base was in southeastern Europe. That's where it drew the vast majority of its tax revenue and manpower from. So it's part of these processes that define Western Europe. It's part of the gunpowder age. It's an innovator in the gunpowder age. Um, In terms of the scale of the armies that I talked about, the Ottoman Empire is doing this stuff decades before Western Europe is in terms of putting larger and larger and larger armies into the field. Um, Its fiscal mechanisms were dramatically more sophisticated. Its administration was much more like what we would understand a modern states to be than what was happening in Western Europe in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. So if you were the Holy Roman Emperor and you wanted to move an army from point A to point B logistically, um, that was that was a pretty tough thing to do. You you because who's gonna who's gonna feed your soldiers along the way? Who's gonna pay them? That was not a problem for the Ottoman for the Ottoman Sultan. He could say, okay, as my army moves from this village to this village, you're going to give them food from this granary where we have where we have uh, where we have food stored. You're going to pay them from these local tax revenues, which will kind of mark off your contribution in a central ledger. Um, this none of this was a problem for the Ottomans. They had this well-oiled machine that ran things very well. But, but the Ottoman Empire was fiscally solvent. This sounds like a good thing, right? That you want to, you want to be fiscally solvent. You want to have budget surpluses. Um, it was a negative in the long run as we move into the 17th century for the Ottoman Empire, because Western European states had gotten used to working on credit. They had gotten used to finding increasingly sophisticated ways of raising funds, which allowed them to fight larger and larger wars for longer and longer and longer periods of time. The Ottomans fiscally needed wars to be short, successful and profitable. In order to in order to maintain the the kind of fiscal integrity of their empire which is why they spent um, most of their energy sacking cities well it's, it's sacking cities and and handing out and handing out conquered land and uh and effectively squeezing their subjects for tax revenue I mean they were really good at it like if you were to ask Charles v Holy Roman Emperor would you rather have your treasury or Suleiman the Magnificence. He would have said Suleiman the Magnificence. He would much rather have had that than his own. But in the long run, because Western European states were forced to find creative ways of paying for things, that set them up much better in the long term because the Ottoman Empire, as as its finances grew more strained, turned to the easiest ways of paying for things. They turned to things like tax farming, um, to kind of, fairly straightforward, high interest loans that were not nearly as sustainable in the long run. In the long run, those things ended up alienating fiscal resources away from the state. They ended up empowering classes of people who were not invested in the success of the state in quite the same way as bankers became in Western Europe. I mean, like This is something that economists and political scientists talk about, is how the state, as it eventually develops in early modern Europe, is a close alliance between political and fiscal elites. Right, That you have bankers, merchants and political elites who are all kind of bound up together, whose incentives more or less align, um, who want to see military campaigns, who want to who want to pay for them and who want to find ways of paying for them, who want to who want to give that money out and who want to get paid back with interest. That kind of neat and easy alliance between fiscal, mercantile, and political elites never really develops in quite the same way in the Ottoman Empire with long-term detrimental consequences. But it takes centuries. It takes well into the 18th century before the Ottoman Empire is no longer what we would call a first-rate European power.
1: I'd like you to name what we would call maybe the hero of those years and maybe the anti-hero of those years and see if you can give us a story of each.
0: Oh, man. Uh, that is, that's a really good question ok, so, a hero of those years. I don't know if I could pick a hero, but I could pick a protagonist All right. And I think for and I think for me, the protagonist is is Martin Luther. I think he's the easiest one to hold up um, because I think it's so clear to see his individual personal impact on the events that that kind of rippled outward from him. Um, I think that, we can see his own individual role in his agency in ways that's much more difficult, even with like a successful general or a King or somebody like that. I think we can really see Martin Luther's, uh, I think we can really see Martin Luther's role very clearly. Uh, I think the other, the other one would be the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian who was uh, one of my very favorite characters in this whole period because he was perpetually broke, he was um, at the end of his life. He resorted to taking out very small, like, consumption loans from the Fugger bankers. Uh, he, he um, but his ambitions were just expansive, right? Like he he f- succeeds in buying the throne of the Holy Roman Empire for his grandson Charles V. He's constantly on a military campaign, one place or another, um, and he very much kind of embodies the ideal of the the questing chivalric knight. Um, you know, but he's just not very good at it. So he's kind of constantly ambitious. He's constantly outdoing things, but he's not really succeeding. And it takes until his grandson's reign for this vision to, to come together in any meaningful way. And so I think there's something very poignant and, uh, encapsulating about Maximilian. Not so uh, like, I don't think he's as much of a protagonist as Martin Luther is, but, but he definitely fits the bill. Now in terms of a villain or an antagonist. And I think Vasco da Gama is a pretty good one. Um, I, he's only present at the very beginning of this era, but I think da Gama really encapsulates, for me, a lot of the, the terrible things, the worst kind of cultural impulses of late 15th century Europe. The, the. I mean, one of the things I emphasize is that Western Europe is very much a backwater in kind of a global sense. It's, it's pretty closed off. Um, it does not have what you would call an ethos of tolerance in any meaningful way. Um, it is, and, and Degama for me kind of encapsulates that backwardness, what I, what I might call backwardness, the, the kind of a, a certain studied ignorance, a willingness to turn to violence, the belief that, uh, the belief in their own, in his own righteousness, um, and the righteousness of the, the particular cause that he served, I think, Dagama, Gama I think, is a pretty good standard bearer for that. Um, I, I think another antagonist or a villain, I think a, a good one is the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Um, Because he's somebody I spend the whole last chapter of the book talking about But simply because you can see in him all of the contradictions of this era You can see the kind of pretensions to universal power the um, You can see this vision of a kind of an all-encompassing European future an empire that stretches to the very ends of the globe On which the Sun never sets and yet he's constantly beset by enemies on all sides He's constantly failing He's constantly bankrupt. Um, he's defeated in battle. He squanders the opportunities to win that he has. Every single bit of treasure that he squeezes out of the New World Empires um, from, the, from the conquests of the, the Mexica, the, the Aztecs, and the, and the Inca, he immediately spends on still more wars. So it's just blood on one continent fed blood on another. Um, for Charles V. It, it's very easy to hold him up as kind of this this paragon of universal monarchy, you know, a, a patron of a patron of the arts, um, a a universal ruler. But I think in a much deeper sense, he, he symbolizes the um, the costs of this period that that, um, you know, the conquest fed conquest in this never ending cycle.
1: You also see Charles V as, uh, how did you put it, the embodiment of state building. And that brings up another question. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you if there, if there was a second Renaissance and Reformation, did it have anything to do with Charles One, when what was basically feudal territories, sometimes only held mm-hmm. together by marriage, when did they become countries? Mm-hmm. And did Charles okay, so V begin that or was there a second Re- Reformation that really brought that together?
0: Yeah, so Charles V is an integral part of that process because if we want to understand how how states were held together in in late medieval and early modern Europe, they were dynastic states. They didn't have any sort of natural structural connection to one another. They were only held together as series of claims held by individual rulers. So you have you could be the king of France. And the Duke of Brittany and the Duke of Burgundy and, you know, the Duke of Aquitaine and the the claim that made you Duke of Aquitaine had nothing to do with the claim that made you Duke of Burgundy. And you might have very different rights, responsibilities and powers in Burgundy than in Aquitaine or in Brittany. Right. So over the course of the. 16th and 17th centuries as these rulers accumulate more and more and more power and authority largely through making war right like that this making war war makes the state and the state makes war as the the sociologist charles tilly put it um the the kind of individual boundaries between these territories start to fall away and rulers rationalize and bureaucratize and and, and kind of, and increasingly administer their lands in um in, in what we would think of as a much more modern fashion and that's this is the period in which you can start to see those things fall away it takes a long time it takes well into the 19th century and even later um, for us to fully see a kind of a what we would understand as the modern landscape of nation states and bureaucratic states. Um, but but you can see that process starting to happen here. You can yeah, s- Like when did Gaul end and France begin? Yeah you know? yeah. The, it, the, I mean, and that that answer is not until Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but you can see the but you can see the beginnings here as rulers accumulated more and more claims. The individual importance of those claims started to become uh, started to become less uh, less salient, right? So you could just be King of France. You didn't have to be King of France and Duke of Burgundy and Duke of Brittany and Duke and Duke of Aquitaine because you knew that the King of France was all of those things inherently. Right. So there is. So it it takes some of the emphasis off of the individual territories and more on these larger territorial units. And this period is when you can really see those internal boundaries start to fall away. You see after this, you don't see the kind of alienation of territory where a kingdom would split into multiple parts. You don't see that anymore. You see the whole that we understand to be France or Spain or England or what have you. We see the whole. Much more firmly rooted than just the individual constituent pieces. In your podcast that
1: you did called "The Tides of History," what do you think was your most impactful story? What was a story, man, that you just loved having out there? And then I'm going to share mine, and it has to do with this period of time. Okay. In my case, I'm wondering
0: about yours. Do you have a favorite? Okay, so I have uh, I have two. I have two favorites. I that's okay. that's a cop out, but. Um, I did a a kind of a speculative historical fiction type episode on a woman who was a brewer in the city of London in the 15th century. Um, and she was. She's a composite character. She's she's a, my own fictional invention, but she's as rooted as I can make her in the in the time and place. So that is. I think that's my favorite. I also did another one on well, before you move on.
1: What happened to her? What, what so, was the, well. What so was the, the story? story.
0: The story of I, her name is Margaret. Margaret the Brewer of London. Um, Margaret's story is one of basically business success and how over time um, the kinds of opportunities that made her a, a, basically a successful entrepreneur entrepreneur, um, the those opportunities were taken away on the basis of her gender, right? So over the course of the 15th century, um, women had fewer and fewer business opportunities in fields like brewing that had previously been dominated by women as men entered the field and raised the capital requirements and basically increased the scale of the business. It's the flip side to, to the kinds of scale processes that, I've been, that I'm talking about in The Verge. Um, as the scale rose, women got crowded out. Uh, because women did not have the kind of access to, to credit and, and finance that men did. Um, so the the Margaret could have been a successful brewer in fifteenth century London with a with a fairly large business that that grew over time but her daughters would not have had that same opportunity. And so when we talk about structural change change over time, these kinds of slow, imperceptible shifts, I think that makes the story of somebody like Margaret really poignant, is that even that over the course of these long lifetimes, you can see possibilities expand and contract for people like that. And what was your second? The second one was the story of a, uh, again, another kind of speculative history thing, but the story of a German mercenary, um, who found his way to England to fight in the last battle of the Wars of the Roses. And so the, it, the, the last battle of the Wars of the Roses was in 1487. It's called the battle of Stoke. And there was a, a, usurper who, um, landed an army in England, uh, to, to try to overthrow the King Henry, the seventh, uh, Henry Tudor. I um, the father of King Henry VIII, whom we all whom we all know and love um, so it was not a given that the Tudors were going to stay in power that they were going to be a new dynasty. the Battle of Stoke could easily have unseated him and we would have gotten another new ruler after decades of of turmoil in England um, but one of the things that's fascinating to me about this about this battle and and this period is that a, Fighting in the army of uh of this potential usurper to the English throne were fifteen hundred or two thousand German mercenaries who had been hired, um, equipped, and shipped to England in uh in, in 1487. That you had an international market in mercenaries where it's just like, oh well, I need two thousand soldiers. Here, here, I can find them for you. Um, and that there was a market for that, and that there were real people who had spent their lives fighting as soldiers. Who were just available for hire. I thought that was a really fascinating kind of dynamic. And so I tried to, as best I could, imagine the story of one of those people who is born somewhere in southern Germany and ends his life fighting on an English field a couple of decades later for a cause that's not his own. Well, thank you so much
1: for spending the time with us today. You've given, and there's a lot more to this book that we didn't discuss, but what really makes it special is the stories of the individuals who were involved here. They aren't just named, nameless names. They aren't just dates that are thrown at us. These are stories and you really do follow along. You've ab- obviously done fantastic research on this to put it together. How many, how many years did this take you? Oh my
0: goodness. Um, I would say it took me about three and a half years to do. So I was, it, it took me quite a while. And, and, a and some of that research went back years to, to, uh, working on my, my honors thesis as an undergrad to master's work. It was it, a lot of it was stuff I'd been working on and kind of turning over in my head for a long time, but it, at least two years of intensive focused research. Well, Patrick Wyman, tell everybody how they can find the verge. So the verge is available on the platform of your choice. I read the audiobook uh, naturally, um, and that might be my favorite way to, con- to Consume it. Um, the it's available for order anywhere you can find your audiobooks. Um, the Verge is available in in hardback uh, or ebook anywhere you want to get it. Um, and I would appreciate it if you did. If you want to chat with me, I'm on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. Um, yeah, hit me up if you'd ever like to talk. Patrick, thanks so much for
1: being with us today. We appreciate it. Enjoyed this interview very very much. Hope to speak to you again in the future.
0: Thank you so much, sir. So much, sir. I really appreciate your time.